Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are, folks, coming to the end of the book of Genesis. So one of the reasons I decided I was going to teach this morning was because it was like, you know what, I can't leave these people in Genesis and not see them and then go on to Exodus next week. I can't. So we're going to end the book of Genesis together. Uh, so we'll say Chazak Chazak at the end um, of our study today um, as we as we hold uh, with um, gratitude the ability to have come through a whole book of Torah uh, and to be beginning another book of Torah next week. Um, we will, uh, of course, begin the first line of the book of Exodus uh today, because we are never between, God forbid, we are never between books of Torah. And so I want to reflect a little, obviously, on the text about where we are in the second triennial reading, but also I want to, I want to take some time to look at um, um, Dr. Peter Pitsula's um, incredible uh, discussion of what it means to have studied these texts. When we leave these texts, we are leaving the patriarchal narratives, we are leaving the ancestor stories, and we'll be entering the story of the nation. So when we start next week, we have the birth of Moshe, and he and, and we pick up at a time where the, the Pharaoh does not remember Yosef, uh, and the people are the Jewish people are enslaved. The people of Israel are uh, in, in bad shape in Egypt. So, so we leave all of these ancestor stories. And so I want to take a little time to reflect on our journey through the ancestor stories uh, with Peter Pitsula uh, before we close today. All right. So let's look. So we're in the second year, right? Second triennial cycle. So we're in the middle of every Parsha. We're reading the middle third of every Parsha. So that means this week we are reading where, where Jacob calls his sons together in order to what usually it's translated as to bless them. That's not exactly what happens. So this text that we're looking at is old. This is an old text. This is a text that is pulled from many different sources. It is not from one place where it kind of gets lifted and plopped down here in Brashit in Genesis. This is pulled from many different references to the different tribes. So we're getting the eponymous ancestors here, the, the ancestors who lend their names to the tribe that came later, of course. This is Genesis. It's its mythic imagination. This is we did not have 12 tribes issued from 12 brothers, right? We know this. We have a loose confederation of 12 tribes that grew out of clans. So clans grow into tribes. Um, there, there was a patriarch of each tribe. That's the arrangement. We know this from other ancient um, texts, Mari and other sources in the ancient Near East, we know that this was the, the societal arrangement, that there was a patriarch of each tribe that grew out of clans. So the Genesis writer imagines 12 brothers, 12 brothers who come from four different mothers, right? So Sarah, oh, Sarah. So um, what, what are their names again? Rachel, 
Leia, Bilha, and Zilpa, right? So we have the two wives of Jacob who have full status as wife, which is Leia and Rachel. And we have the handmaids, the handmaids, Bilha and Zilpa. We can assume what happens in the archaeological record is that the assumption is that the concubine tribes have less status than the tribes that are designated as coming from the wives. So looking back at where they come from, from the brothers they come from, in the mythic imagination, we can tell something about the status of those tribes. We can tell something about the history and status of those tribes just looking at this text as well. Um, and we can assume that the clans that, that the that the clans that grew into tribes had special relationships, those that are um, read back into the same mother. So the Leah tribes, the Rachel tribes, the Bilha tribes, and the Zilpah tribes would have had special relationships to each other. That's how it gets read back um, as having the same parents, mother and father. And um, we can assume the Leah tribes um, originated in Mesopotamia, the Benjamin tribe uh, originating in Canaan. All of this right, gets layered back onto uh, the moms and uh, the mothers and the handmaidens, the wives and handmaidens. All right. So, so what the author tells us, the author of Genesis tells us, right, starts at 49.1 with this whole, you know, final scene with Yaakov. This is a, this is a mishmash of three different kinds of deathbed or end of life stuff. One is the blessing that we know from Isaac, right? The, the deathbed blessing. That's one kind of literature that's expressed here. The other is the, the death speech, like we see in Joshua and in some other places. So the, this, this grand kind of speech at the end uh, of life. So there are different kinds of, um, of things expressed in this, because you'll see this is not blessings. Some of these are aphorisms. Some of these are about the eponymous ancestor. Some of them are about what historically is going to happen um, to that tribe much later uh, than any of this. And our commentators knew this. They did not call this the blessing of Jacob. They called it the testament of Jacob, because even Ibn Ezra, right, in the middle, early Middle Ages, understood that these were not even mostly blessings. All right. So let's see. Let's see what they put together here. All right. So we're looking at verse one of chapter 49. So Yaakov calls to his sons and says, gather that I may tell you now, I know Barry's going to catch it, right? Um, and I'll tell you what. Asher yikra etchem ve'acharitayamim. This gets translated as gather together and I will tell y'all, right, lachem, y'all, I will tell y'all what's going to happen to you 
at the end of days. But I hope Barry's going to object. So will Hannah, Rabbi Hannah. They will object to that translation because they know how to spell. All right. So we'll come back to that, right? Um, so it's translated as get together and I will tell y'all what is going to happen to you. Ba'acharit hayamim, at the end of days. This says in days to come. <clears throat> All of the commentators point to acharit yamim as being meaningful, that it is at the end of days, at the end of time. So ultimately, what's going to happen to y'all? Assemble v'shim'u and listen up, b'nei Yaakov, sons of Yaakov, v'shim'u el Yisrael avichem, and listen to Yisrael, your father. So the self-reference here of Jacob to himself as Yaakov and as Yisrael, right? He, he names both names, both, some t- interpreters want to say both parts of himself, the Yaakov part and the Yisrael part. He's bringing both of those aspects of his personality together in order to tell his children what's going to be at the end of days, what's going to happen to them, asher yikra etchem, What's going to happen to y'all at the end of days? All right. So what's going to happen to them at the end of days? Let's see. Reuven, you are my firstborn, my might and first fruit of my vigor, exceeding in rank and exceeding in honor, but beauty, unstable as water. You shall excel no longer for when you mounted your father's bed, you brought disgrace, my couch, he mounted. All right. So come together and I'll tell y'all what's going to happen to you at the end of the days. What happens? That's, that's not what happens. He launches right into talking about Ruvain, his oldest son, right? So the oldest son, if that is the, if that's mythologically the firstborn son, we would expect that tribe to have a very special place in Israel's history. Once upon a time, we can assume it did, but things changed, right? And Ruvain lost that status. Ruvain, the tribe of Ruvain declined and lost that status. And here's how, here's how our sacred mythology deals with that. Why? Why did Ruvain lose all the honor and respect of being the firstborn? Because we know from the book of Genesis that, uh, that he sleeps uh, with his father's concubine. That's right. That's mythologically how it's dealt with. But clearly Reuven enjoyed a certain status and later did not. Shimon and Levi are a pair. Their weapons are tools of lawlessness. Let not my person be included in their counsel. Let not my being be counted in their assembly for when angry, they slay men, and when pleased, they maim oxen. You can already hear how tangled, how tangled this is, right? This is not straightforward stuff. This is the most difficult text we have in all of Genesis. This stuff is really hard to translate. Um, a lot of these words have fallen out of usage, so we don't know what they mean. Some of them just don't make sense when you put them together. But we know about Shimon and Levi, don't we? Right? These brothers, clay Hamas. What does Yaakov call them? That they're all about, they're vessels of Hamas. 
We know about Hamas, don't we? Right? Right. Hamas, chaos. Absolute, utter, terrifying chaos. Right? Which is why the group in the Middle East named itself that. Hamas. So that's what they're accused of here by Yaakov. Because do you remember when that happened? What happened with Shimon and Levi? Do we remember? We should. We should remember the story of Dina. Yes? And they come and slay Shechem and his father and the entire village. Right? That's Shimon and Levi who are responsible for that. Clearly, Levi not being thought of here as the priestly clan. Right? That's not what they're lifted up for here in this um, leave-taking of Yaakov, they are paired with Shimon for what they did to Shechem and to the people of Shechem. All right. Um, right, that they are, they are they're fierce and their wrath relentless. I will divide them in Yaakov, scatter them in Israel. So uh, we know what happens to Levi. Yehuda. You, O Judah, your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the nape of your foes. Your father's sons shall bow low to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. On prey, my son, have you grown? He crouches, lies down like a lion, like the king of beasts. Who dare rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, so that tribute shall come to him and the homage of people be his. He tethers his ass to a vine, his ass is full to a choice vine. He washes his garment in wine, his robe in blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. This is obviously an expression of beauty uh, in the ancient Near East. Um, this is all about Judah. Judah rises. Benjamin declines in the history of Israel. Judah rises. And of course, we know what does it mean? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. We know the king will come from the tribe of Judah. Who's the king of all kings? David. David comes from, he will rule in Judah and um, the capital will be in Judah. And that means all your taxes go to Jerusalem, right? So that's what all of this is about. All this stuff going to uh, the tribute, So all of the tribute, meaning all of the taxes that you pay are going to go to Jerusalem and be dealt with uh, in Jerusalem. Now, now we get something totally weird about Zvulun, right? He'll dwell by the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall rest on Sidon. Okay, that's all we get about Zvulun, right? That he's, he's going to be coastal, right? So not a lot there. Yisachar is strong, crouching among the sheepfolds um, and decides to settle in a certain part of the country. Dan will be the seat of government. Um, and we go on to the rest of the tribes. You can see God, Asher, Naphtali, Yosef here, right? Um, and here we come to the God of your father who helps you and Shaddai who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that couches below, blessings of the breast and womb. 
The blessings of your father surpass the blessings of my ancestors to the utmost bounds of the eternal hills. May they rest on the head of Yosef, on the brow of the elect of his brothers. Right. So this here we get all this fancy language around Yosef. Um, and then, of course, the youngest, uh, Binyamin. All right. When Jacob finished his instructions to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathing his last, he was gathered to his people. So here we have the death of Yosef, uh, sorry, of Yaakov, and Yosef is absolutely devastated. All right. Let's go back to the top. So he calls to his sons. He asfu, gather. Also a play on whose name? Yosef. Yosef. Yes. Good, Barry. I knew you'd get it. All right. So you Israeli, you. So um, he asfu, right? A play on Yosef. And I will tell you what. And Barry, do you want to tell me why I'm going to argue with the translation? What's going to happen to you? Yes, because uh, to happen is you create with a hey in, at the end, but here we see an aleph, uh, which is more like to read or uh, uh, to call upon someone. Nachon. So the text, if you look at how it's written, it doesn't say what will happen. Yikra with a hey is what will happen to you. Yikra with an aleph is what will call to you. What will call to you. All right, let's look at Rabbi Rami Shapiro, one of my favorites. All right. So what does Rabbi Rami Shapiro say? He, he points out the Torah text. He points out that it's not a hey, it's an aleph. What will call to you. So then he has this virtual Rebbe that he has somewhere inside him. <laughs> And so a student asks the Rebbe inside uh, Rami Shapiro, um, what's, what's going on here? Like what, what, what? Torah tells us that he revealed not what would befall them, but what would be calling them. In other words, Jacob says to his children and by extension to each of us, do not imagine that history is just a series of random events. If you listen carefully, you will hear in each moment a call. It is God offering you a chance to work for holiness. Your job is to listen and respond. Beautiful. Don't think that something happens and then it's stomach. It just happens, God forbid. Rather, what's happening in your life is something that is calling you. You have the opportunity with every single thing that happens. You have the opportunity to discern how is this event and my response to it out of it. How is this an opportunity to work for holiness? What is the response that would be called for from me if I were to make this an opportunity to work for holiness? What would my response need to be? And then he goes on another interpretation. Why does Torah say assemble yourselves rather than simply come to me? 
What does it mean? Asfu, gather yourselves to assemble. This phrase could be directed not only at the brothers as a whole, but uh, but to each one of them independently. Meaning, assemble yourself, pull yourself together, and then I can tell you about life and how to live it. What are the various parts of yourself that you might need to assemble in order to hear the deeper truths about living in touch with God? All right, I want to stop there for a second because that's a lot. Pull yourself together. (laughs) I can't talk to you about how life is supposed to go, what the meaning of it is, how you're supposed to respond to the events of your life, how you're supposed to hold the picture of who you are until you pull yourself together. Each of you figure out what is it you need to do to pull yourself together? And I don't know about y'all, but that that's, that speaks to me this year. Pull yourself together. It's 2021. Get a grip. Right? And, and what would you need? What, what parts of you need to come into the conversation? What part of you do you need to gather together with the rest of you? <laughs> Um, in order to get a grip, in order to get yourself uh, together. And like, what what part of us is kind of hanging out over here? Either because we banished it, we're ashamed of it, we don't want to deal with it, we don't like it, it makes us nervous, we don't want it, someone else doesn't like it. What are the parts of us we need to pull together in order to be able to respond to how we're supposed to live life. Helene says individually and collectively, correct. If we don't pull it together, people, democracy's not gonna make it, right? We have got to get it together, individually and collectively. And certainly this is where the commentators go from that idea of pulling together is as individuals for sure, But also as a collective, we have got to figure out how to pull together. We don't have to see it the same way. We have 12 tribes. We have 12 different experiences of what it is to be Israelite. That's fine. That's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a confederation of different individual tribes. Fine. That's what they say about looking at the camp in the desert around the Mishkan, all those different flags. We're supposed to have different flags. We're supposed to be camped under different banners. Fine. But you have got to pull together. You've got to be facing the center. You have to be facing the Mishkan and be all about the same project, even as you come at it from different perspectives. All right, Barry. Um, yes, um, I think we hear that that calling a lot. You know, we need to unite. We need to settle our differences or whatever. But this is not what happens here. What happens here is these tribes have to figure out. Some of you will rise to leadership. Others will have to set their egos aside and move to the back of the line. And, and there are criteria to who shall rise and who shall fall. 
And, and, and until you figure that out, it's not like this, let's all compromise, you give up, give up something you believe in, and I'll give up something I believe in, etc. No, this is not what happens here. It's not like a giant compromise of lesser evil. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a change in leadership. It's a change in, uh, in political structure. Uh, it, it's not like this peaceful thing of kumbaya. Right. Nobody's suggesting kumbaya, by the way. Nobody's no, but this is what we hear. But yeah, if, we you hear a lot of if you can't pull it together, people, if you continue to pull against each other, and you continue to work against each other in terms of the common project, it will fail. And we know that from Israel's history, right? Israel falls. Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms, were so at odds with each other internally, it weakened the nation and Israel fell. And then it wasn't long before Judah fell. They were so busy right? Pulling against each other that they pulled the whole thing apart, ultimately. And they were looking in the wrong place for who the enemy was. Boom. There's Assyria. Surprise. That's not who they thought it was going to be, right? So, so absolutely, it's hard. There's nothing harder than trying to, to gather a bunch of different perspectives and different experiences and different ways of looking at the world together in a common project. There's nothing harder. But the imperative is, according to the, the, the teachers from our tradition, when they look at this text, they use this language and this text as an excuse to preach against human nature, Barry, to your point, to preach against human nature, which is you have, I want. And if you have, I'm going to take some of yours, right? Why am I not in leadership? Why am I not in control? Why don't I have power, right? So 100%, that is human nature. Our work is to get it together, people. What do we have to put aside? We talked about what do we have to bring in? Also, what do we have to put aside in order to really Agree to the common project, whatever that is. All right, Bert, you wanted to say something? Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, There's a much more modern idea that seems to have its root here, and that is the idea of God as process, as a verb and not as a noun. You want to say more? Uh, That was a revolutionary idea for me, that God doesn't become a thing, but it becomes movement. It becomes movement. It becomes action in time. And godliness is not becoming something, but doing something. So that was one piece. The other piece that struck me, and this is very much against our modern idea, we have this whole thing of, well, I've got multiple kids, so I've got to uh, love all of them equally and make sure that I don't favor one over the other or anything of that sort. There's no attempt here at all. Uh, Jacob is... Jacob is dealing with each kid, and and maybe you want to comment about why there's one of his children that's not named here, Uh, but (laughs) you know who I'm talking about. He named all the men. Right. (laughs) He left out one. Yeah, the tribe of Dina. 
Yes, which is not a tribe. Uh, but th there seems to be a recognition, and those of us who have multiple children certainly, I think, will have seen this. We love all them equally, but not in the same way, and that they are different, and the way we treat them and what we see for them and what we hope for them is not always the same and is partially due to who they are and what they have chosen to become. Nice. Nice. And right. There's no attempt here because this is not actually about 12 people, mm -hmm. right? This is actually about 12 tribes. So it reflects the actual history of that tribe. It reflects the actual status of that tribe, right? Not what Jacob wants for them, but what actually was the status of that tribe. So we know. I was just taking it in a, I was taking it in yeah. a more contemporary and different place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but that, but that's the reality too of society, right? Is that some groups succeed and some groups within a society don't as much, but that may not be what they want either, right? Like, obviously you could say I'm not a success because I don't have a $30 million home and a private plane, right? So maybe I'm not so successful or it could be that, I'm not so interested in having a $30 million home and a private plane. If I were, I'd have them, of course. Um, but if, right, that that's not where I choose to focus my time and energy. That's not my definition of success. That's not a life, right, of meaning and depth necessarily for me. So um, so there's there's actual differences in, in, in how groups within a society fare. Uh, and then, you know, then the questions have to be something about, is that what they want, right? What, what is, what would be self-fulfillment for those groups? Um, all right, but wait, I want to hear one more thing quickly, Bert, about where you find God as process in this text. Well, I, I, it's not so much in the text as what you were saying at the beginning of what they become uh -huh. and how they become it and godliness unfolding in their actions in the future. It was okay. more your comment than necessarily on the text than yeah. necessarily in the text. I, I don't know if it was Mordecai Kaplan or, or uh, Harold Schulweis. Is it called predicate theology? Is that yes. The, the term, right, that God, God is process. Well, predicate theology is we predicate about God that which um, is good, helpful, healing, transformative, right? All of that stuff, that that's what we predicate about the divine. And it's about what we predicate about the divine that we focus on, like you said, not on the origin of that. So we focus on godliness, right? In predicate theology, um, not on God as a noun, but on the qualities that being in relationship to the divine, in right relationship to the divine, the qualities that are brought into the world and into ourselves um, through such right relationship. Well, I would go, it, it, it's, it's not just the qualities, it's actually the verb of actually doing it. So process theology is different. Okay. That's, that's different than predicate theology. I just want, that's all I'm trying to say. So they both, both start with a P. They both start with a P. <laughs> so Kaplan, right, talked about it as the power, capital P, that makes for transformation, capital T. The power that makes for freedom, the power that makes for healing, the power that makes for goodness. That's Kaplan. He, so he, he called God the power that makes for those things. 
and that we draw on that power and draw it through us and through our lives. And as you said, through our actions, that that power becomes manifest in the world because we access it and we make it manifest. We make it um, happen in the world. So Rabbi Hannah points out, um, there's this wonderful book by uh, Rabbi David Cooper of Blessed Memory called God is a Verb, right? So, so he's, someone, he's someone who based, uh, like in our mystical tradition, right, understands that we God together, right? That what happens between us right now is Godding. And that's what he's interested in. He's interested in um, and how we activate, if you will, um, the divine uh, in the world. All right. Um, God is a life process by which we live. Yes. And yes, absolutely. So let's go back. I just want to show you one other thing that the, that the tradition gets all excited about. Maybe. Okay. So, and that is this part right here where it says, come together and I will Tell y'all, whatever, however we want to translate that, <laughs> what's going to call you, what's going to call to you, what's going to happen to you, however we want to translate it. At the end of days, the commentators go crazy here because they say that's not what he does. What happened? He's going to tell them what happens to them. And he doesn't do that. Makara, What happened? And they answer, actually, he had a moment of prophecy, that Yaakov had the power of prophecy. And he's about to tell his sons what is actually going to happen to them. They're going to go to Egypt. I mean, they're in Egypt. They're going to be in Egypt. There's going to be this nasty Pharaoh who doesn't remember Yosef. It's going to go seriously off the rails for a while. 400 years of slavery, it's going to suck, 2020, it's going to suck really bad, really bad. You're going to think it's never going to be over four years. It's never going to be over, you think. And then, though, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be this guy, Moses, and God is going to make some really wicked, cool stuff happen with this guy. And y'all are going to be out of here. You're going to go. You're going to conquer the promised land. You're going to have your own country. Yay. All right. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. So there's this moment of prophecy and the commentators say, and then God shuts it down. God takes it away. God says, "Uh uh-uh. Not going to happen. You are not going to tell them their whole story. You're not going to tell them what's going to be. So this is the first mention we have in Torah of what's called redemptive history. This is the first mention we have of the idea of aharit hayamim, the end of days, the messianic era. This is the first allusion to it. Redemptive history is revolutionary. Why? In the pagan world of the ancient Near East, in the pagan world, everything just happened over and over and over and over and over again. Nothing ever changed. Changes. Things happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It's a cycle. 
And your job is to participate in the life of the gods to the extent that you can encourage the cycle to continue. That is your role as a worshiper, right? So you want to make sure the crops stay fertile. That's going to be a good spring. There's going to be a good crop, right? So you participate in, in the pagan process to make things happen over and over and over again. Redemptive history, Israelite understanding of Yamim, that there is an end goal, that it is not simply going around in a circle. It is instead going in a circle and spiraling towards something. This is a radical new idea. This is very different from the pagan world that this comes out of. So this idea of redemptive history is very exciting to everybody who cares about there being some kind of end game, some kind of end goal, something we're moving towards, circling back through. Yes, always birth, death, all those things, productivity, then it dies, then it withers. Yes, of course, that's the cycle of life. But that we're circling up, we're circling towards something. Redemptive history. All right. So he's going to preach about that. Why not let him? Why not tell them? It's going to suck. But then it's going to be okay. It's going to suck. But then it's going to get better. Why not? Why would God do that? Why would God? Let's just pretend for a minute that the commentators, let's go with their reality for a second because it's fun. Um, Why give him that power of prophecy and then shut it down? Judith? I, I think because he doesn't believe that's the case. That, that, that's not the direction he wants to lead us or that he wants Jacob to lead. What toward. does that mean? It means that living now, it, you're not working toward the end goal. You're working toward living your life a certain way. It's not what you believe is next. It's, it's what, how you behave now. And I wanted to say before, when you were talking about, it's about your actions in your lifetime. I think that's my belief in what love is too. Love is not a belief. I mean, it is a feeling at first, but that passes and love is action. It's what you do, what you choose to do. So if you're telling people, this is what you're working toward. It takes the focus off what you're doing now. Okay. So I want to I want to go there with a little bit of a tweak. If I know the future. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> exactly. If I knew I was going to be living in Pacific Palisades in a beautiful two-bedroom condominium at 55. Why, why should I, I do anything? Why should I do anything? If I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay the electric bill, therefore I need to go waitress really hard. The if we know the future, it takes, like you said, our eye and our attention off the present. The other thing it does, though, is it takes all of the hope out of yes. the picture. If we, we have know seen it's that, it's going to be okay. Then. Or we know it's it's not going to be okay, right? If we're told you're going to, God forbid a million times, die in a car accident at 41, you give up, right? There's no hope. Right. 
Or if you're told you're going to live a long, healthy life, you're going to be 97, you're going to die with your family around you, well, good. I don't have to do anything. But if the future is unknowable, say the rabbis, then we have to hope. And we have to work. We have to hope and we have to work. We have to try. We have to imagine. We have to create. We have to lean in. We have to make something happen that might not happen. If we we don't, don't work. If we don't work. If we don't lean in. If we don't figure out a way to act as if it's possible for this to succeed, for that to succeed, right? One more thing, Amy. Yes, it, ma'am. In the, in the Christian world especially, I think that idea of knowing that there's something afterwards to look forward to, an afterlife, it has perhaps been a positive thing for some, for the, the people who are slaves to say, well, at least, you know, if I behave myself now, I've got that coming but it also denies them the hope of making life better now. Yes. It's been a very big part of Christianity for a long time that you act in a certain way. So you'll get to that point. And as a matter of fact, when I was going through the process of conversion, my mother felt that because I was doing what I was doing, I was doomed to hell. It was the afterlife that was more important rather than the life now. Right. And this is also, it's not even just Christianity. This is what they were responding to when they're writing in ancient Israel. They're responding to Egypt. Mm-hmm. Right? Because Egypt is completely focused on death. Right. Egypt was completely focused on the afterlife, on achieving the afterlife and achieving a certain status in the afterlife. Death, preserving the body. It was all about death. The pyramids are a monument to a dead Pharaoh. It's so he would live on after death. That is what Egypt was all about. So these early texts of ours already are pushing against that idea. Certainly within Christianity, if you want to convert a bunch of people who are suffering, right, then a great way uh, to deal with the fact that life is really awful here is just to build, yes, focus on the afterlife. And when you look at Jewish writing, when it's really bad for the Jews, guess what? We get a lot of rabbinic imagination about the afterlife. That's when we get (laughs) that's when we get a focus on the world to come is when it really sucks for the Jews here. Because Sometimes that is your only comfort. When the streets are running with the blood of your children in the Middle Ages or after another pogrom, you can understand how focus on living a just and good life here is going to get me a good seat in Olam Haba, in the world to come. Because what else do you have? Why be good when your village is being run over and burned and your women raped and your children, like, and your children conscripted forever. Like why be good? So some people can answer that. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of people that's it's not good enough. right? Cause it's, it's right to be good. It's not enough. There has to be something else. And the focus becomes very much um, otherworldly. 
But I think you're right, Judith, in that I think Judaism has always resisted. It's except for these periods and these times um, where it really was horrible. Um, Judaism, uh, uh, on the whole, <laughs> sorry, like glitch in the brain, um, on the whole has really pushed back against that to say we have to focus on what's here. The more we focus on the afterlife, and it's why we also, you know, we, we not only don't have a, a systematic understanding of the afterlife, go look at the Talmud and go try to figure out what the afterlife is like. Go try it. Go try. I invite you. Because you can't. There's not a systematic understanding. Just as even within the Bible itself, my teacher from Hartman, Knoll, wrote, wrote a book and he called it the Divine Symphony. And, and Malila Helner Eshed is teaching right now about the many images of God, even within the Hebrew Bible. There is not agreement. There's not a systematic understanding of God. There never has been in Judaism. Right. Right. God is a warrior. God is a teacher. God is a sage. God is a lover. God is there. It's all over the place. Even within the Hebrew Bible, it's all over the place, the images of God, because the, the, the attempt was never to really define God forbid God. Right. It's Maimonides who says you can't say anything about God other than what God is not. Right. Maimonides says you can only talk about God in terms of the negative. What God isn't. Because we can't possibly say anything about God. It's just impossible. It is way beyond our ability. And it's not been the interest of Judaism, right? That, that we are focused on what we do about it, right? What are we supposed to do? Not how are we supposed to think about this? Am I still muted, Amy? No, you're not muted. It, okay. In a painting, for example... One of the most powerful ways to paint is to leave negative space. It can often say more than a brushstroke. Right. Who was that famous sculptor who said, someone said, how do you, how do you know what to chisel? I take away what's unnecessary. Like, right. I remove, exactly. I remove that's not part of the sculpture. It's like, Okay. Right. If the brains can think that way. It's just crazy to me, but okay. Right. So you take away, it's about taking away, right. And then leaving, um, leaving what's there. Um, so, um, right. David Russo says, why develop a vaccine? If you know what the afterlife will bring. Exactly. We, we need to be focused yeah. on what we need to do, what our role is, what our job is. That is absolutely where Judaism has pushed back against every, every other culture. It's not culture, but you know, philosophic system, theological system that it's lived uh, in contact with. Barry? Uh, yes, uh, I wanted to go back a little bit with uh, uh, the thing that we have this, uh, I think this text was written as, a, as an explanation uh, after the fact uh, of why uh, the end of days, I think here means the end of the kingdom, the end of the United Kingdom uh, of Israel. And, and I, I'll tell you why I think that. Because you have these two, uh, out of the tribes, you have two leaders that, are, that get praised, you know, with, with uh, the others get a sentence or two lines, uh, and two of them get praised, uh, which is Judah and, and Joseph really means Ephraim. 
And they are the ones who are contesting to the national leadership at that time. And uh, in, instead of deciding who will or, or how to get along, <laughs> uh, they, choose to, um, uh, they choose to rip the nation apart, divide it into two, and then ultimately lose everything. Right. Well, sh- sh- for sure, some of this comes from, from that reality, for sure. Absolutely. From and, and that strengthens really our point that, you know, in, in Torah, we have very little discussion or no discussion at all about next life. You go to Sheol, you That's don't right. go to heaven or hell. Uh, That's all the Torah cares about. It doesn't matter what happens. The dead can't praise you. So, so let's not focus on that. If they can't praise you, we don't care. And that's why I and that's why I think that the end of days there is actually an end of an era, rather than a mythical a mystical end of all days or whatever. I don't think it was in their psychology. I, I don't think it was the end of the kingdom either, though. I mean, like I think it's about the future. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Whenever you want to put the future, afterlife, end of the United Monarchy, wherever you want to put it. I think the rabbi's point is you don't get to know that. You don't get to know that. And so then the discussion has been, why not? All right, I, want, I know I'm keeping you, but it's New Year's Day. Where the heck else are you going to go? I want to show you just a little bit of Peter Pizzola as we come to the end of Brayshit, as we come to the end of Genesis. I think this is just so powerful. This is so powerful. There are two kinds of memory, right? The first is what happens, right, to people but I want to go to this other paragraph, but that's not the whole story. A second kind of memory is paradoxically the memory of what did not happen directly to us. Culture is the memory of what did not happen to us. This is the memory of family stories that we may have heard at our grandfather's knee. He's writing, he's writing a book about the patriarchal stories. So he's using patriarchal language on purpose here. This is the conclusion to his book. Our memories are crammed with such materials out of which we can form a larger story about who we are. People come out of a continuous familial or ethnic tradition. People who come out of a continuous familial or ethnic tradition possess a self that is intimately connected to other selves as part of a family tree or a tribal community. Such people are linked not only to the ancestors, they are linked to the figures of dream time. Such people recognize the validity and relevance for themselves of those experiences that occurred to others in a distant, even in a mythic past. The there, they're theirs in a very real sense. For such people, memory has a coherent transpersonal dimension. The pain of a distant ancestor or a wounded hero may bring tears as quickly as the pain of a remembered childhood womb. Uh, wound. Part of what it means to me to be a Jew is to develop this second memory and to develop it in relation to the history and the myth theology of a Jewish tradition. The development of this Jewish memory is coming relatively late in my life. It is an acquisition. And as such, it is undertaken at least uh, in part with some intention. It is a cultivation 
a choice made in terms of what I take time to learn, what I take time to read, where I will go, whom I will talk to and about what things, how I will think about my spiritual life, how I will pray. To me, to be a Jew means to explore the tradition of Judaism, not as an academic field, not an intellectual exercise, but as a way of living, a way of life. That tradition is vast, branching out as it does over more than 3,000 years of continuous history. For one person, it is inexhaustible, not only in its span, but in depth. Various mystical schools of thought have given the stories and practices of the Jewish tradition a spiritual dimension as rich and complex as any mystical tradition I've ever heard of or encountered. One can practice Jewish spirituality as one can practice Buddhist meditation for a lifetime. And during that lifetime, one's awareness of God or self or soul of imagination becomes increasingly profound. I made a document um, of it, so I will send it to you um, because I want you to read the whole piece. It is incredibly beautiful, but this idea that what our work together, what we're doing is we're developing that second memory. That's what we do together every week. That's what we do is we explore that second memory. These ancestors, these stories are about us accessing what didn't happen to us. It happened to Yosef, but it happens to every one of us every time we're betrayed and thrown in the pit. It happens to every one of us every time we have to stand before Pharaoh and try to figure out what we have to offer in that moment, even as a slave in chains. So we, we access this other memory and, it, and, it, and it's been going on, like things piled on top of these ancestor stories It's been going on for 3,000 years. More layers, more layers, more layers, and more layers on every one of these stories. And that's what Pitzel is talking about, that he's come late to this in his life. He didn't grow up with these stories. He did not grow up understanding the meaning of these and being told that. He's come to that through study. He's come to that through a longing to participate in that second memory the memory of what didn't happen to him. And that happens to us all the time. And that's what these stories are for us, a way of unlocking that second memory. So to all of you who have just started, welcome. Welcome. You get to do it the rest of your life. For those of us who have been doing it for a really long time, it is a continual source of amazement that there's something new every time we open this part of Torah again. There's something else. There's something we didn't see before because we couldn't see it before because it wasn't in us yet to see. And that continues for the rest of our lives. So together we say, Chazak, Chazak, Chazak. May we be strengthened as we leave this book of Genesis this time. We're going to come back to it again next year, people. We come out of it and we move into, uh, we move into the book of Exodus. So Bert, will you read the first opening lines of Exodus, please? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, 
Dan and Naphtali, God and Asher. The total number of persons that were of Jacob's house came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly so that the land was filled with them. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Thank you, Bert. We have begun, people, the book of Exodus, because we are never, God forbid, between uh, books of Torah. So I will close with the words of Peter Pitzela. He talks about the wells. Remember all the wells that we've studied in Genesis? Hagar and Jacob meets, right? You know, people meet by the well, the betrothal scenes by the well. So he's talking about wells. And he says, the wells of Genesis are profound. They speak to me of a fertility in the soul. They are an image for the life of the imagination. That life is mysteriously deep, sprung from hidden aquifers. Wells are essential to life. The wells of the fathers nourish us and are as essential in their way as food is for the body. Wells in the wilderness are miraculous. Living water from rock slakes the greatest thirst. Sweet water in the dry places is provided beyond all human provision. We are asked to keep this water fresh. We are stewards of the gift. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.